Okay, uh, well, welcome to uh, another edition of uh, Supply Chain Next. Uh, our podcast is now today featuring um, the author of Platform Revolution, Jeffrey Parker. Uh, so we're really looking forward to diving into a conversation today. And Jeffrey, thank you so much for participating and, and, and welcome to the podcast. Richard, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for asking. Absolutely. Um, you know, so just we're going to dive right in um, with, you know, your background and, you know, the people listening in today are, are going to be very interested in hearing, you know, kind of the genesis behind, you know, what, what got you to where you are today and ultimately what got you to uh, writing Platform Revolution. So I'm just going to, you know, kind of ask you to kind of go back through a little bit of, you know, the career and what you got to you writing the book. Sure. So uh, first, just a little bit on the background. Um, I was always interested in technology and interested in business. And I uh, spent some time in industry uh, with GE Semiconductor and Healthcare before grad school, um, which really helped kind of understand uh, supply chains in many ways because mm -hmm. we were busy. Uh, that was sort of in the Jack Welch era and they were um, doing a lot of outsourcing. It was fairly controversial and, and a lot of trying to understand how to weave these complex systems together um, needed to be built. Uh, I went back to grad school, um, left sort of the business world. I was in finance and, and engineering at GE. Then I went and did engineering at MIT, um, but with a policy focus, technology and policy program. So really looking at the intersection of technology um, society and economics. Mm -hmm. um, stayed on and did a, a PhD. And as part of that process, I met up with one of my uh, longtime co-authors, Marshall Van Alstyne, and he and I were really interested in kind of network effects and understanding the business models. Uh, and in particular, why so much stuff was free. And, and we're kind of used to that now. But um, earlier, if you wanted to say a copy of of Lotus one, two, three, you spent $500 and they shipped you a box of diskettes. And the idea that people would pay that kind of money uh, for something, you know, that you can get literally for free on Google Docs or Google Sheets, you know, today is, is impossible. But at the time that was the norm. And so we were really interested in how um, all of these sort of free business models worked. And then that got us to thinking more broadly about sort of the rise of these cloud service firms and, and ultimately um, platforms. And, and, and sorry to interrupt, but you know, yeah. you sort of key in on a couple of key, you know, key things uh, here that I want to make sure that we sort of put some timelines around. Approximately what time frame are you talking about? This, this feels to me like you're talking about sort of the mid to late nineties, kind of the internet. Yeah, so Marshall yeah. and I, yeah, definitely. We got going on the network effect business models in the mid, sort of like the 97, 98 timeframe mm -hmm. and really put out our first couple of papers um, working out some of the core economics and the core theory. Uh, and then that ultimately became a field of inquiry known as two-sided networks or two-sided markets. Mm -hmm. um, was there an inspiration behind that? Because around, you know, yeah, going there, back to my was. time frame, I was, I was actually in the Bay Area at the time, investment banking, um, and everything was, you know, I mean, it was just a crazy period, you know, dot com, everything you could get funded, you know. You, you, you know right, right. All you had to do was just put the word dot com on your business plan. Right. <laughs> It was, and I and I have some of those war stories too. That's for a different podcast. Uh, uh, however, you know, uh, just to put some some context around it, I mean, about I think it was ninety seven was about when Bezos launched Amazon. So 
I guess my specific question is around that time frame, you still kind of had this whole, you know, dot com, what is the internet? You know, people just figuring it out. So for you and Marshall to see something in platforms, what inspired you at that time? Because that was probably a good five, six, seven, eight years before the whole platform um, really concept and business model started to take hold and we started seeing real world data and the benefits. And then of course your book was, you know, published in, in 2016, if I've got that correct. So a little bit later, but you know, what, what, what made you think of that platforms at that time? No one, no one seemed to be thinking about that. So, so we didn't really think of them as platforms at the time. We were really interested in two sided markets and mm -hmm. why one side was often free. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually the Genesis is kind of funny. We were both uh, Twin Peaks fans. And Twin Peaks got canceled, and that was annoying because this was content that today we're used to, you know, like Prime Video and Netflix and Hulu and all the, the rest kind of being able to, to uh, target very niche audiences for specific content. But at the time, the only business model in town, um, you know, other than the, the sort of premium HBO, and they weren't really doing TV shows at the time, uh, was ad-sponsored uh, media, and that meant kind of very middle-of-the-road tastes. So that got us interested in looking at how um, the business models were starting to pop up in the dot-coms. Mm -hmm. And you started to see things like the, the browser wars were, were launched in roughly that time era, kind of uh, um, Internet Explorer and uh, Netscape. And you know how Internet Explorer basically kind of was distributed at price zero and then destroyed the ability of Netscape to monetize. And then we were very interested in, okay, well, how did the, how does the, how does that work exactly? And sort of where does a firm like Microsoft and, and many others monetize if they're spending clearly tens of millions of dollars building enterprise class software that they're never going to charge for? Um, and that then ultimately morphed into a broader study of platforms and how um, platforms mediate different parts of the network. And, uh, you know, early on, we called them platform-mediated networks, but that was a bit of a handful. Um, so, we, you know, sort of the industry and, and our, our colleagues ended up just shortening it. Gotcha, gotcha. Um so again, so much to unpack in this. Um, so as you started kind of seeing this emerging business model, which today just on the precipice of 2020 um, seems almost like it's commonplace. Uh, you know, this is where, you know, you've obviously got the platforms that we're all used to today. You know, the, the Googles, the Amazon, the Alibabas, the Ebays, uh, the Facebooks. I mean, there's, there's now countless, you know, uh, examples of platforms. So, you know, as you were kind of forming up your thesis or seeing that from your point of view, from the outside kind of looking into the, the evolution of the internet, what kind of trends started happening? Or what, what do you think sort of were the tipping points? Because I'm not even sure today, you know, having been in the Valley for 21 years uh, myself, you know, I, I don't know if I would consider launching without thinking my, of myself as a platform today, especially in an internet-based <laughs> business, right? Um, so, you know, what kind of, what, 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 you know, you were seeing it early on. What did you see in the industry that started moving in that direction or what kind of was um, uh, corroborating your thesis at the time that you started picking up on? Well, so, so first of all, we saw these pricing anomalies and we, we sat down and we generated about 30 or 40 examples 
Um, and there were things like HMO networks or at the time I played a lot of computer games. And so I was really interested in the, the way that the level editors were essentially um, uh, system, uh, you know, uh, developer kits that were made pretty user friendly so that people could do user generated content. Um, and we were seeing that trend in the late nineties. Um, so that was pretty neat. Um, and then of course the streaming media players and, and the browsers. So we could see examples where if you had to sell these products alone, you, you would have to charge a positive price, but because they were embedded in these larger systems, they were able to internalize the network effects. In other words, um, sort of capture the, the spillover benefits from the free side of the market, creating value on some other side of the market that would end up paying. And then you would see these systems only charging one side. And then once you started kind of mapping that out, you realized that in the middle of these was some sort of a, an orchestration entity, a mediator. Um, and you know, that's ultimately what we ended up identifying as a platform. And, and you know, we're, we're standing with other colleagues who were also seeing these. Um, and I think Michael Cusimano um, and Annabelle Gower at MIT were very early in identifying some of these trends as well. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to claim to be the only person noticing them, but we definitely were pretty early in working out the, the actual mechanics of how to do the pricing. Mm -hmm. And, and so with that two-sided, you know, uh, uh, effects here on the platform, you know, whatever that may be <clears throat> traditionally, you know, you often you, you kind of outlined it in the book, buyers and sellers is sort of the easy one for most people to kind of get their heads wrapped around. How did that then move into authoring platform revolutions? Like what yeah, made so, you go to that next step? <laughs> so, so that story really starts around 2001 or 2000 when I started teaching um, a class, I think I called it like information strategy. Um, and so taught that for several years and we started to teach uh, some of the economics um, of two-sided networks and, and how to do the proper pricing with network effects and then how to do bundles um, of information goods and how to price those. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, and what we realized were those were especially bundling where you aggregate multiple products or services and then sell them as a bundle is one of a, a platform's powerful tools. And then network effects and properly pricing distinct user groups is another one of the powerful tools. Uh, and then, and you know, it's a, it's kind of a funny story. Um, then hurricane Katrina hit. And so I was at the time a business school professor at Tulane. So I sort of went offline for a while, uh, and then taught some of the core courses as we rebooted, um, Tulane and sort of got the, got the university back up and running. And so I stopped teaching that class because I had other things to do. Um, but shortly thereafter, we, we wrote a, a paper um, called Strategies for Two-Sided Markets. Um, and that came out in Harvard Business Review in 2006. And that really took off. I think it's actually one of their top 50 all-time sort of, uh, of uh, articles um, because it really identified these strategies and we also explicitly articulated the idea of platforms and how they were working and how they orchestrated 
multiple different types of users. So I'd say that about then, we had a pretty well worked out set of ideas on how these things worked. Um, and so that's sort of part one of continuing the journey. And then you ask the question, well, where did the book come from? So the book came because I started teaching an elective again and Marshall uh, at, at Boston University uh, and I taught at the same term. And so we co-developed a lot of the content for our classes, uh, but realized that between us, we we're only hitting about 100 people a year. And so we did that for several years and, and got a lot of content pulled together. Uh, and then in about 2012, 2013, actually in 2011, I wanted to write the book, but Marshall wanted to start a company. Um, so we co-founded co that and kind of ramped it up to about 10 people and then, uh, and then uh, wound it down when we clearly had never, didn't achieve product market fit. And so uh, I had, <laughs> had some experience uh, in, in- Well, you gotta, you gotta get that real world experience. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, right? you know, can't, can't uh, get the scars and everything in, in, exactly. in going, through the, going through the process, <laughs> right? It's one thing to talk about, it's another thing to get looked in the face of you yeah, and hear no 50 times. You know, yeah, real money in real time. Uh, yeah. So we wound that down, then, then it was uh, time to write the book. And actually, in many ways, um, I think the market was more ready for it a little bit later um, than had we done it earlier. So we uh, also noticed that Sangeet Chattery, um, who's a kind of a, a consultant in Singapore, uh, was doing a lot of writing on similar topics. And he had sort of some nice ideas that, that complemented uh, what Marshall and I were working on. So we invited him to join the team and we all met in Boston uh, and really outlined the, the book over the course of about four or five weeks. Uh, and you might say, well, what happened between 2013 and 2016? And what happened is we parsed out the chapters and we each wrote them uh, up and that took probably another year uh, toward the end of 2014. And then in 2015, there was sort of a lot of back and forth and, and post-production. And then it was ready to go in early uh, 2016. Gotcha. I think it's one of these things too, where, you know, people don't oftentimes recognize what it takes to get in, you know, to actually write a book. You know, it's not something you just crank out, you know, everyone's used to these sort of, uh, you know, maybe it's the spy thrillers, the Tom Clancy's or, or what, Daniel Silva's or something that, you know, th th those will become recipe. But if you're creating something like this, this, this is a lot of effort. I mean, multiple years, uh, clearly. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It does not, um, it doesn't come fast. And we had a lot of, uh, a lot of research that we had done, uh, both, of course, many of our colleagues, but a lot of it, of our own work that we're able to really ground sort of the practical advice of the book, but in, in you know, rigorous frameworks and theory, which was something we were trying really hard to do. Um, so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of jump in because I think for a lot of people, you know, who are tuning in, they probably have read the book. So I'm not going to go through that in particular, um, you know, and we'll get to it in a second. However, what I think is also interesting to point out is, and, and let me just, again, emphasize this, Platform Revolution is and has become, and I certainly say this, uh, you know, required reading almost if, you, if you're a Silicon Valley tech person or aspiring to be a technology startup, or quite frankly, I think even in today's business world, you need to read Platform Revolution. Um, you know, it, it gives insights into something that 
you know, has materialized on the internet and created, you know, incredible fortunes. However, the question I want to ask is, when you look back historically, it's not like platforms haven't existed before the, you know, uh, the internet. They did exist before the internet. We just didn't think of them that way. Can you know? Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's it's yeah, it's yeah. a great question, and it actually um, is sort of part two of some of uh, the things that we worked on that informed our view. Um, so so one, um, platforms have existed absolutely, and they've existed you know back into antiquity. So if you think about a village marketplace, you know, Kirka the year 800, that was a, a platform that matched supply and demand. Farmers and, and artisans brought their wares, but it was limited in, in a lot of fundamental ways because its scale was naturally limited by the costs of transportation. You're mostly dealing with physical goods, so they, they had to incur that cost. Um, and so they didn't scale in any meaningful way. So you always had network effects in the sense that you could create better matches and have sort of more value in the system as you got more um, users uh, on board. But the transaction costs specifically having to deal with the physical and also having to incur transport costs just overwhelmed the network effects. So these things didn't scale. And so what we've seen with kind of the, uh, the revolution of kind of information computing technology and, and telecom technology is just a, a dramatic drop in the cost of, of transmitting information and then storing it and then crunching it, you know, turning it into, into sort of valuable and usable objects and, and services. So that's sort of one trend. Um, so absolutely. So if I can jump on that too, because you make me think of something else, which is, you know, another... Um, Again, going back to you know pre-internet time, it's sort of like you know BC and AD, which is like you know pre-internet, post-internet, um, you know, and what the world was like. So, so you know, kind of riffing on that, platforms existed pre-internet, and the ones I always like to think of, and you obviously talk you know a bunch, and you you call them in the book you know pipeline-style companies, but let me stick with platforms for a second. You know, your average telco or you 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 know electrical utility is a platform, um, has been for a long time, and companies aspired to become platforms like that. Um, and I'd also contend, but, but asking you this is, the more you became a platform pre-internet, the more you drifted into more of a utility-based model. It was almost as if, you know, to become a platform pre-internet, it's like you then were so ubiquitous that it, you, you almost were a utility at that point. So I think of most utilities as platforms pre-internet. So, you know, your water, your, uh, uh, you know, garbage to an extent, uh, any of the utilities, uh, electrical, uh, telephony, uh, even, even television. Um, what they did give them though, or, you know, if you got to that point is enormous barriers to entry, right? Because the cost of attaining that platform status pre-internet was so exorbitantly expensive. That was your competitive advantage is that you kind of became that. That's changed with the internet. You know, not only can you build a platform quickly, doesn't mean it's gonna be successful, you know, but the switching costs have changed dramatically. Can you, can you kind of talk a little bit to that, that contrast well, a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're right in that it used to be that you had to build data centers um, and, you know, have server racks if you were going to launch a business that was in the, 
the, the manipulated bits and, and, and was digital. And of course that's silly. Now you just, you whip out a credit card, sign up with any of the cloud service firms and you can sort of do proof of concepts and tests and start coding and building things almost instantaneously. So those startup costs have fallen dramatically. Um, and so also people can easily switch technology. Although I would argue that a lot of the really big firms have very powerful network effects that, that make them pretty um, secure uh, and pretty, pretty um, entrenched in the economy. Uh, but, but I wanted to go and, and sort of poke a little bit at, at some of the, the earlier firms, because you're right, something like an electric utility you know, sort of organizes supply on one side and then distributes it. Um, but, you know, for the distribution utility, eh, it's not a very open system. I mean, that didn't get opened up until uh, we restructured, say, the electricity market, created wholesale markets, and then that allowed sort of a, a relatively free entry of generation generators um, mm -hmm. to come and, and, and sort of bid into markets. So uh, previously, those were pretty vertically integrated where a single utility would own all of the generation, sort of the coal plants or the, the natural gas plants or, or whatever technology you were using, and then supply that out to the end users, be they industrial, commercial, or residential. I think what's happened now and what we find so fascinating is that firms are, are a lot more open than they used to be and they allow for a wider variety of, of say supply side users, people who can bring interesting products and services um, to come and then get access to demand side users. And the really, the really critical piece is that unlike the village marketplace of you know, the year 800, a lot of today's platforms provide technology and reusable building blocks of you know, financial services or contracts or, or literally code that allow for the more rapid creation of products and services. And that's where you get this accelerant of innovation. And then that sort of drives you to having even a more open platform that would allow for additional parties uh, to come and join the party, if you will. Um, and that's, that's, I think, been a real change from years past is this notion that these architectures um, uh, and these systems can be recombined in interesting ways to create things that no one ever thought of. So that, that then kind of leads me to kind of bringing us up almost to, I'll call it modern time here or current time. Um, since writing the book and since observing all this stuff, really quite frankly, you know, it sounds like almost for the last 20 years, you know, have you seen a, and you kind of just outlined it a little bit there, a shift in platform strategies, or maybe it's more of an awareness of what a real platform strategy, as you call it, accelerant might be as you grow and scale, or maybe it's just a better understanding of platforms and what to do with them. You know, how has that shifted in your, from your perspective in what you're observing in platforms that are coming out today, whether it's legacy platforms that, um, you know, maybe haven't learned the lessons of how to stay relevant, or maybe it's new platforms that are coming up that are accelerating at faster paces. I mean, how has the whole platform kind of development changed a little bit, just say in the last, 
I, I'm going to say it's probably in the last five to seven or eight years where it, 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 it's evolving from my perspective, but you know, how, how do you see that? Yeah, no, so great question. And, and I think people will notice this in the book that a lot of the examples that we used were consumer facing. And I think for good reason, a lot of the growth occurred in, in more fragmented markets that were somewhat less regulated or perhaps dramatically less regulated things like media um, and then some of the, the digital services uh, you know, like uh, mail and search and, and things like that, streaming video, streaming music, things where you could really start to organize supply um, and aggregate it and aggregate demand and get them together and, and create valuable exchanges. Um, so there's a reason why it took off a lot faster, I think, on the consumer side. But now, and to your point, Really before you before you go past that yeah. too quickly, because it's actually it's very relevant to one of my own theses on just the differences between consumer experiences and business experiences. We'll we'll probably get to that in a minute. But just can you can you double click or can I double click on on why consumers? I mean, I have my own supposition around this. You kind of highlighted a little bit there, but the internet for me, at least for the first 10, 15 years, well, according to for the first 15 years has been dominated by the consumer kind of focused business models. That's changing. We'll get to that. But, you know, do, do you have any thoughts on that? Like what, I mean, you kind of highlighted a couple. Well, so I think it was easier to innovate and experiment because if you think about um, the IT sort of operation of your average kind of industrial or, or name brand firm, you know, those systems were built to, to organize very stable and robust supply chains. And so they weren't really designed um, to be open and to do the kinds of experimentation that were possible in the lighter footprint system. So I'm thinking things like real networks uh, early on, things like Google when they were first getting going um, and they had this sort of browser, it was a light adoption cost. And even things like the browser, you know, sort of made it, it possible to have this meta, this, this sort of base layer of presentation and interaction capability that previously was always kind of custom inside of a specific piece of software. So that, and that ended up being consumer facing because if you're a large enterprise, you didn't really need that. You had a custom solution. You had a business problem that could be solved with IT. And, and so, your sort of interest in switching away from that was pretty low because you valued stability of the system over, you know, kind of rapid innovation. So I think there are a lot of reasons. Um, sort of the cost of experimentation were much lower on the consumer side. The markets were huge. The internet was spreading faster, I think, you know, with individuals. Um, and so I, I think you can trace back why, uh, why that happened. And, you know, we can't go back in history and run a different experiment, but at least those are plausible ideas. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. And I think, you know, kind of again, bringing that forward is, is now with sort of the internet enabled platforms that have really become the mainstay and especially uh, uh, dramatically changed the consumer supply chain. How do you see that now playing out in the business world? I mean, that, that's the essence of, of, of supply chain next year. But, you know, that's, that to me also is one of our theses looking forward. I mean, I think, I think the decade of the business supply chain or enterprise supply chain or digitization of the business, that decade is upon us and it's huge. 
Um, yeah, I, how, I how do you completely agree. And, and sort of this, I'm, I'm getting tremendous interest. So, so first of all, um, just think about the experience of consumer-oriented software and its user interface, um, sort of its functionality, uh, the, just basically how good it is relative to a lot of what people have to deal with on the enterprise side. And so I think there's a lot of demand for better systems because the rate of innovation on what, uh, was just faster on what people um, were consuming you know, through their mobile handset devices and, and you know, their personal computers. Um, and e even these days, and, and we used to laugh at the cable um, set boxes, but they've actually become pretty interesting and capable. Uh, and then you look at the, at the supply chain you know, for a, an, a, a significant you know, organization that might have hundreds or thousands of, of sort of suppliers that they're trying to, to organize. And, and the, the data visibility is terrible. You don't know where the stuff is on any kind of real-time basis. They often have batch processing systems, so statuses don't update in any kind of meaningful time frame. And then you're trying to manage this thing and with, on the purchasing side, you might place a PO and then, you know, a normal thing would be for a back order to pop up and you would never tolerate a back order as a consumer. You would just move over and, and buy the next thing and you would have real time status on its availability and, and shipping. And I think people are, are sort of looking at that and saying, well, that really ought to be the case in the rest of our system and, and in these B2B systems. And so I think you're going to see a lot of push toward sort of breaking down or at least cutting across a lot of the vertical silos first within organizations. Um, and that's kind of platform antecedent, if you will. Those are necessary investments to the system. But once that's done, and then you can start getting sort of information out through APIs, uh, and then you can start building services around them that then starts to make it possible to hook up external parties, either suppliers, ecosystem partners, whoever, um, in ways that previously would just be really difficult. Um, and, and I'm hearing, uh, you know, significant pull on this. And, you know, I was just speaking at a, a medical supply chain conference and speaking to uh, some of the senior sort of managers of, of those systems. And this is exactly the sort of thing that they're trying to do. You know, these are complex systems, but there's a lot of value to be created. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, could obviously couldn't agree more in the in the business of it. Um, <clears throat> and, and and again, sort of parsing that a little bit here. You know, I, I think, or let me ask the question this way. So there's a lot of learnings one could could take if they are thinking about building platforms for business and enterprises, which, you know, I'm just going to sort of say is, is a new thing right now. Um, although there are existing platforms out there, Salesforce is one that I look to, uh, up and coming one service now is another one that's a great platform that's, you know, business centric um, and, and kind of how they're growing. The question is, you know, what are the best practices that we've seen succeed in the consumer platform uh, development and adoption and success? And how does that then relate to business focused platforms? Is, are there parallels? Are there enough parallels? I think you're kind of highlighting them here, but you know, if, if someone here was listening and wanted to build a platform for the business world, I mean, what could they take and learn from the 
success in the consumer world? Yeah, so first, I think um, a lot of on the, the sort of enterprise side has been very supply chain sort of internally focused. And sure, you might be buying stuff from a supply base, but it's still a fairly stable relationship or there's some kind of purchasing officer or contracting relationship. It's not as fluid as the more consumer-facing platforms have been. And think like, you know, the Google Play or, or Apple, you know, store, app store type of thing. Um, but I think as the enterprises go toward this, they're going to realize that the, the functions are changing. And in the sense that, you know, the, the kind of ecosystem management capability that the digital natives, if you want to call them, or the, or the consumer-facing firms grew up with as just a, a natural um, order of things, and also their horizontal kind of IT systems that were really wrapped around external service provision and analytics are going to have to be built. And so I think there's a, a fair bit of re-architecting that needs to happen, particularly with incumbent firms, um, so that they can actually be outward facing, not just to their consumers, but also to ecosystem partners that they would like to attract to their systems and literally be able to treat those partners as though they're valuable customers, because of course they are. And that's a headset change and a management function change that, um, you know, is, is really interesting. And, and actually, it turns out um, one of my collaborators, Peter Evans, um, and Marshall and I are launching a, a study of kind of the, the workforce implications and what does, what does sort of a platform um, ready workforce look like. And if you go to LinkedIn, you'll see 20,000 jobs right now if you put the word platform in. And a lot of it won't be platforms in the way that we mean them, uh, but a lot of them will. And, and you're seeing firms start to try to really parse, well, what does a platform product manager need to be able to do? What does a platform strategy officer need to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to pull all this data and and get it aggregated and put it out in a report, um, you know, probably over the next five or six months, because we think that's something that, in particular, incumbent firms really need um, some help with. Well, well, let, let's let's dive into that one because I think there's a couple things that we could tease out of that as well too, where we've seen some real world examples. So, um, <clears throat> enterprises tend to be very security focused, right? Operational focused, which is one of the reasons why the you know, openness of a platform tends to be sort of anathema to their security concerns. But that has to change in this new modern world because you actually have a competitive advantage a la, say, with the shift we see from uh, Steve Ballmer-led Microsoft to Satya Nadal-led Microsoft and the exponential value created in more of an uh, uh, acceptance of open openness, you know, open collaboration. So in respects to platform, platform adoption, and maybe avoiding some of the early mistakes one might make if they were a platform uh, strategist uh, at a company might be, and this is my question, you know, the, the, the instincts for enterprises have, have been to build their own platforms or try to build their own platforms versus adopting a platform that is used by their industry. 
pros and cons? I mean, I, I think there's yeah. an obvious question there or an obvious answer, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, and, and, and so um, let's not lose the security question that you asked or, or sort of statement. So let's just yep. push that onto the stack for a minute. Um, and let's talk about the sort of build your own versus adopt. Uh, so the issue with building your own, especially if you're in an industry with peers, is that the peers um, may not want to cro be cross-compatible uh, or you end up just in the, the danger of building incompatible sort of walled gardens. And the end customers are probably not as eager for that. So you may end up you know, limiting the ultimate size of the market. So it, it's a tough question because um, there are advantages to building your own. You've got a lot of control. You can set prices in the way you want to. You can set the rules of engagement the way you want to. You capture the benefits of cross-subsidization and sort of launch in the way that you might want to. However, risk-averse customers who don't want to get locked in may refuse um, to participate. So you know, some types of industries may have to uh, sort of go with a consortium model where you would work together, you know, with peers and then launch a uh, launch sort of a neutral platform and then, you know, work with that. It's sort of a control versus end consumer uh, lock-in versus ultimate market size kind of a question. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really, there's a whole exercise that you would go through in kind of understanding, well, is this a market that's going to tip to a platform? Yes or no? Um, am I a big enough sort of fish that I can uh, move that uh, and help tip that? Yes or no? Um, and then am I able to really control that end customer relationship Yes or no. Um, and if you're sort of yes all the way through, then sure, you're going to end up at least rolling the dice and investing and, and seeing if you can make a go of being sort of a name brand platform. But anywhere along that path, if the answer is no, you may end up then saying, well, this looks more like an industry consortium uh, type of situation. And if you're too small on that, then you may end up sort of backing up and going, okay. Um, I clearly need to understand how platforms work and, and how to leverage the value um, that they can create, but I'm not going to be able to build one. So I'm going to have to learn how to cooperate with the ones that are going to work in my industry. So you know, there's not a one size answer on that. I think yeah. it's sort of a progression of how to think. So let's come back to security for a second, because that seemed to pique your interest as well, too. On the yeah, so that's, uh, that's something that's, you know, you said that a lot of these incumbent firms are, are very risk averse and for good reason. I mean, especially in areas where you've got kind of health and safety or environmental risks. So think about medical systems, think about like our energy, um, oil and gas exploration systems, pipelines, uh, you know, refineries, these things, if things go wrong, really significant damage can be done. Um, same thing on the healthcare side, you know, medical devices, uh, if you if they screw up, they can cause pretty direct patient harm. So, so there's a, a risk aversion that that is 
understood. And, and I'd say the same thing on financial services, you know, where if, if you've got a FinTech and they're, they want to connect into your system, kind of take a pretty hard look at them and go, well, are they going to handle the consumer data in a responsible way? You know, are they going to commit fraud? Are they even going to be able to scale and deliver the services? So the, the companies will have a, a kind of a risk management vetting function. And that vetting function will spend some time taking a look at a potential partner. And if it's a small partner, you know, they're probably less likely to survive this, this sort of risk assessment. Uh, and, and so where I end up talking with firms and sort of helping them think this through is there's a secondary risk that you're, you're not calculating. And that risk is that those fintechs or those startup firms um, and our partners who could bring interesting ideas and value to your system, they're not going to wait around forever. And so the longer you take to vet them, the less likely they are to stay and join the system. And that has to be part of how you think about risk management. So it's not just I'm going to de-risk it by, you know, I'm turning every rock over and taking my sweet time um, because there's this ticking clock that says, oh, they're going to leave. And so I better be fast about it. So it does suggest that firms need to invest in their kind of vetting capabilities to deal with their, their ecosystem partners in ways that they haven't really had to because they had a lot more time mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. And I'm going to take that because security kind of leads me into one of the, I think, where a lot of enterprises do have some security concerns. But, you know, as a technologist, I can tell you that they, we can work around them, which is the role of data. So you, you have been very clear in articulating the value of platforms when you're, you know, creating value and putting two sides together, you know, in one place. And, you know, ultimately there's a new term, you probably use it yourself, but, you know, value networks, you know, instead of supply chains or whatever. But, you know, initially here, and I'd say, <clears throat> excuse me, the thrust of, of the, the, the original book, Platform Revolution, was really kind of, you know, articulating all the things that we've been talking about, you know, why a platform is good, you know, the historical cases for platforms. But now that platforms have been in place, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about looking forward, uh, in, in, which is the role of data within the platform and, and what's being aggregated and what's being, uh, uh, what, how that is facilitating analysis to get deeper insights to exponent, well, my terms, words here, exponentially increase the value of that platform or even the participation on that platform. Because data data is a, a game changer with platforms that, that's also now you know, here front and center, right? So what, do you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so, um, so agreed, um, but kind of two, two thrusts around that. So um, first on the exponential value, I, I, I really, I, I think you've got to think about how you can add additional kind of, um, products, services, value to the individual user above and beyond. So you can scale linearly. If I can sell something and get a recurring revenue stream of say a thousand bucks a year, a hundred bucks a year, whatever it is. Um, and I start with a thousand users, I scale it to a million. Um, but that just goes linearly. The real game and where you get nonlinear value add is in opening it up so that people can bring additional kind of services or value 
and provide them to the same user. Um, and so that's kind of one of the, the, the ways that you get this exponential value increase. But all of this is predicated on sort of having a very robust data analytics capability because you've got to you know, sort of be able to segment markets, uh, cluster, you know, cluster things, identify trends, uh, um, detect, uh, you know, bad behavior so that you can squash it before it ends up polluting your system and driving off your users. Um, you've got to have a, a really good kind of A-B testing, experimental and hypothesis testing capability. And so that the analytics is really embedded at the heart of these systems um, to be able to drive decision-making, um, identify gaps in, in what people are hoping that it would do, identify failure points. Um, but I do think they're different ideas. I think the analytics play a lot of this um, sort of supporting role. And then the nonlinear value add, I think a lot of that comes from being open to external parties who can kind of come and contribute. Yeah, makes makes total sense. And I think that's also played out in, I always like to use the Salesforce model. You know, Salesforce builds their original platform. You know, the core essence of the Salesforce platform is the customer record. And then once that kind of gets going, then you see the formation of the, um, uh, what do they call it, Dreamforce Now conference, the developer conferences, right? They're really you know, inspiring people to come and add more value. So it's almost in a way, as you were describing that in my head, I started seeing a chart where you've got kind of your linear growth with... Yep. You know, supply and demand, then you've got your, you know, kind of logarithmic growth or, you know, accelerant curve, you know, uh, 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 shaped up based on the, the addition of, di you know, different services or apps into the network. Yep, that's a, exactly. I mean, Salesforce is a perfect example. Enterprise software per seat fee, that's a linear revenue growth with the number of users. But to the extent that those same users start to buy additional services, then you're starting to capture more. And there's another effect in there, which is the churn rate. And so you've kind of, you, you've got to be managing that mm -hmm. to try to keep that as low as possible. And then sort of the holy grail, and when you really take off, is when you, know, it, you, you sort of upsell or create additional services um, such that the revenue you get off of the existing users, even if you lose 10% of the users, if I can sell them the uh, the other ones 20% more, I'm I'm in business. Yep. And I can go hunt new ones um, to to kind of refresh the user base. And and whereas you're also going to take that. So there's but there's a third curve which you know is that role of data. And I think that's the, that to me that's a that's just my own personal opinion you know, there's, there's a bit of a wild card there, right? It's, it's, you know, the data becomes more valuable as you understand it, as you collect more. I mean, there's sort of this weird relationship to value and data, right? Um, Cause it's not one-to-one. -one, it's not easy just cause I have a bunch of data doesn't mean I can make it valuable. But in the, in the case of platforms and I look at the Salesforces or the Googles or even Facebook and, and data played a very interesting role as a sort of a third curve that, you know, alters also uh, their value over time. It's, it, it's one that I can't articulate, but I just, and I know you're kind of thinking about it, but uh, I'd be curious to think, and it kind of leads me into my next question, kind of what's next, like what, what's coming after Platform Revolution? And I know a new book is coming out. Maybe you can kind of give people a preview as to the thinking that you guys are evolving when it comes to platforms. Well, so, so I think we're going to work. So first of all, let's just talk 
again about the data. I mean, you're right. And these, these big cloud tech firms have been really good at building out their robust data analytics capabilities. Um, and it's been, I got sucked into that. So I teach a, a fair bit of it. And it's a really nice thing to, to teach because it complements the platform thinking so well. And so if you can teach the students how to do sort of connection with APIs, how to run you know, AI and machine learning in the cloud, you, know, you give them a lot of modern tools. So that's been, that's been cool. Um, in terms of what's next, I think we've got a couple different directions to go. I mean, you know, in the near term, really helping firms think through what are the sort of, what's the platform talent stack going to look like and how do they sort of articulate what you need um, and what are we kind of observing in the market? I think that's going to be fun. Um, and then longer term, I, I, it, you can't be in this industry and not sort of feel the forces of, of kind of regulation coming. And you know, sort of the, the biggest firms had free reign for a very long time, but I think now there are a lot of scrutiny and questions being asked. And so we're trying really hard to think through, uh, well, what does regulation look like and what makes sense and how do you, I mean, I mean, so for example, some of the ideas have been to break up some of these firms. Well, in a world of network effects, that may not be the wisest course of action because you could actually destroy a lot of value in your kind of quest to, to create competition or, or reduce some consumer harm that you perceive. So, uh, we're definitely going to think hard about governance, um, data governance, data regulation, and um, so that ends up sort of moving us into a into a policy world. Um, but also able to think through for firms. Well, you know, how do you how do you avoid sort of getting into um, the, the the crosshairs of, of the regulators? And I think that you know, every government on planet Earth is going to be investing um, in in sort of their capabilities around analyzing, assessing, and looking at the, at the tech firms. Um, so that's one area that we're gonna go, um, but that's gonna take a little bit longer because I think that space is just in, a, in so much flux right now and there are a lot of ideas being tossed around, but we, we, we as a kind of academic community um, have a lot of rigorous thinking that needs to be done um, to even have coherent things to say. Um, yeah, we, you know, we have some theories, but they're not they're not one hundred percent tested yet. Mm-hmm. And and so regulation, I mean, that that certainly coming, and you know, maybe they're kind of breaking up some of the existing platforms. Thinking a little bit about kind of where you're seeing the platform adoption, we talked about it earlier. You know, in the business community, and kind of looking forward there. Um, we talked a little bit about the decade of, of the enterprise supply chain or the digitization of the enterprise kind of operations. Let's, you know, I, I think there's, we could probably go on and on on this one, you know, the death of the ERP system and how that's evolving into you know, the platforms of the new age of business. Um, how, how do you see platforms shaping different industries or the business community? Because I think that's, that's also what, you know, people are really kind of focused, or at least I, I know personally very focused on, and I think there's enormous opportunity in that space alone, right? I mean, there's the, the, the view of just platforms as they've existed, but, you know, how platforms are going to shape business over the next decade. Well, I think, you know, we're fond of saying, and we'll, we'll sort of see 
um, whether it, it comes true, but you know, where there can be a platform that can add value, reduce transaction costs, um, there's going to be. I mean, somebody's going to introduce that business model, uh, and there's a ton of money out there for, you know, you're, you're out there in San Francisco. So, you know, for, uh, to fund those ideas and run those experiments. Um, so, so I, I think that's coming like a freight train. And as you said, you, you sort of the, the, the change in the ERP system. I think that's a great example because it's going to have to become much more sort of external facing and able to create the, the services that people will want to build on top of and get much more end-to-end visibility and in effect start to look like the, the existing platform firms in their ability to cut horizontally across organizations because a lot of these legacy systems were built to solve sort of division problems, problems within verticals. And they were never designed to go horizontal. And so I think you just see a lot of effort on the, on the kind of supplier, IT supplier side, if you will, in putting meta layers in that can kind of mediate between the old stuff and then um, create horizontal layers and then eventually kind of absorb the old stuff as it gets retired. Um, and that's the sort of conversation you're starting to see in, in quite a few industries. It's almost, it's almost, you know, I, I had a, a, a working slide oh God, about 15 years where I was thinking about, you know, platforms on platforms on platforms, right? It's almost like a pyramid effect. Right? <laughs> um, yep. And, you know, the internet itself is the ultimate platform, right? That connects all this stuff. Then you've got an abstracted layer that sits on top of that, which are the platforms that are the core services. And I would contend today that next layer are the cloud companies that we see. Mm-hmm. Then on top of that, you begin to see uh, application uh, platforms. You know, they're starting to do things, i.e. Salesforce or, you know, or Facebook or Google or whatever. Yep. And then on top of that, and on top of that, will become more platforms. They'll just become smaller communities, right? There's an inverse relationship uh, or direct relationship. I mean, we're looking at that, let it, um, you know, at the base layer is the biggest and most value, right? But as you move up the pyramid to, you know, a top level p- platform, you know, there's, there's less value, uh, but maybe it's more sticky or something. I'm not sure yet, but I mean, I think that's, that's the world that I see coming out. I mean, I don't know if that's sort of- No, that resonates completely. I think we're going to see these things nest on top of each other. Mm-hmm. We'll also see, as you say, the meta layers. And, and sort of the translation systems to allow them to interoperate and communicate. Yeah. So, so we're kind of coming up on, on the time. So I want to be conscious of that. And, you know, just again, looking forward and kind of priming the pump here. Um, I'm pretty sure at least I thought I read that you are in the throes of, of creating a new book. Is that, is that true? Uh, it is. And it is on this data governance and regulation. And so we're, we're working, we, we're trying to sort of both work with, um, the business community and also with the, you know, regulatory authorities and, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and frankly do some, some fundamental sort of thinking and research, uh, ourselves. And so we're, we're in the middle of that process right now, mm-hmm. um, which has been, it's been really interesting, frankly, to sort of see the different, uh, approaches to regulation, um, sure. And then, and then the area that's that's incredibly important, I think, for for the business side is a lot of regulation can be 
sort of forestalled or avoided through appropriate governance. And the degree to which the, the companies sort of can manage their communities in ways that create value for the, the constituents and the participants makes regulation net less sort of salient, less necessary. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned, you know, we, we've seen like data breaches and things or privacy violations and those sort of draw regulatory scrutiny and had the, had there been better uh, governance systems and internal regulatory capabilities, those, that sort of governmental response wouldn't have happened. And so I think sort of thinking through, well, where, where are you going to trigger backlash um, is an important you know, service, if you will, or an important exercise. And then you can give some, some reasonable advice on, on what sorts of capabilities, how are you going to manage these systems because, you know, it, it was sort of the Wild West, but that's come to an end. Yeah, absolutely. So, so awesome. So, um, you know, great parting thoughts, you know, kind of looking forward, you know, to, to the body of work that's coming. Um, definitely want to thank you uh, for coming in today and, or just you know, being online. I mean, this is just a great, great conversation. Platforms are, they're everywhere. I just don't know if people have really taken the time to step back and look at them in that sense. And they're so powerful and influential. And especially if you're getting into, you know, creating a business today and you're not thinking about that. actually, you know what, I, I can't close that asking this question. So uh, <laughs> it's just good. And, and we could go on for hours here. So I'm, I'm trying to contain myself, but parting last question. So, so uh, I just noticed the other day, uh, very specific. So KKR just talked about <clears throat> making a purchase for Walgreens. I think it was like a, whatever, $35 billion or something like that. Yeah. And my initial thought right away was, how do you transform a legacy pipeline style business like Walgreens into a platform? Because if I was the strategy guy at Walgreens or I was a KKR advising them on what you need to do moving forward, which is a whole other interesting question about private equity and the role that they're playing in optimization yeah. of technology now, because you know legacy was operations and right now technical operations rests on platform adoptions or converting to platforms or anything like that. So specifically, can't leave without asking this question. What are your thoughts on that? How do, how do you look at legacy businesses that we see falling by the wayside and not kind of, you know, adapting fast enough to shift into a platform mentality. How, how, how do they, how do they well, get so the, around Yeah, that? exactly. And, and, and any, you take Walgreens or, or any other firm at one level, they have incredible assets, right? They've got existing customers. They've got flows of product and service. They've got data that startups would kill for. And yet they struggle and startups and and entrants can come in and sort of disrupt them when you sort of shake your head and go, wait a minute, why did that even happen? And I think a lot of what happens is that the, the, it's very hard for firms to pivot and it's very hard for them to disrupt themselves. And, And when they try to mount some of these platform initiatives, they tend to reduce margins uh, because they'll, you know, so that that's what created the opportunity for a platform play in the first place. Um, and then that creates channel conflict inside the organization. And then the antibodies come out and start to kill off the initiative and try to defund it. It's a great, um, great analogy. And that's really, I think, you know, part of the, the challenge. And so then you can get a private equity firm and that can come in and, you know, replace the management um, or, or, 
replace is, is kind of harsh, but um, maybe what would be better is to counsel and create educational opportunities. And, and I've actually been involved in, in some of the sort of thing where, you know, um, uh, a fund will, I've, I've joined a fund and, and the senior managers of some of the portfolio companies and then some of the, the investors uh, to try to help. Uh, so first of all, level set so we can have a conversation using the same language and then to help um, the investor side see, okay, what is it they're planning to do with capital? Um, and also to help the management side see some of the opportunities. Um, so that's been really fun. And those are you know, wacky things you end up doing as a, as a college professor. Yeah, but I think it's fascinating because that's, that has to be a key question. When I look at the role of private equity today in, in sort of this new digital world, um, you know, and again, I go back to their models, buying existing companies and kind of operationally uh, tweaking them, increasing margins, whatever. Um, well, in today's world, that playbook has to include, you know, digitization, right? Yeah, well, I really think it has to include um, dealing with the inevitable channel conflict when you change the business model. Yep. And you're probably more likely to be able to do that from outside. Yep. Um, because there's so much sort of external pressure and power that you can bring to bear that's much harder to organize internally. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, with that, because honestly, if I if I if I tempt myself with yet more questions, it'll it'll just keep going. Um, and th but this has been a lot of fun. Again, really want to thank you, Jeff Parker. Um, you know, just in people platform revolution book is out there. We'll have a link to it and everything. Any parting thoughts that you want to give people on just you know how to reach out or say hi or you know are you yeah LinkedIn? so yeah. yeah please reach out. Um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, we're trying to get this uh, platform strategy Institute up and running, which is a, a place where we're going to try to put out some more thought pieces. Um, so Peter Evans, uh, one of my co-authors is leading the charge on that. He's going to be managing um, this platform talent study project that we're working on. So uh, there should be some fun things coming, coming out in the next uh, six months to a year. So, Awesome. Stay tuned. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. And, 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 and given how successful Platform Revolution was, I know it's going to be a wild, wild ride to watch and you know, being in the middle of it, a lot of fun. So really appreciate the time, uh, Jeff. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And uh, we'll see you the next time around.